Podcast Network. He tried to convince people to drink sacrament water. She tried to convince people to drink their own pee. You're listening to Mormon and the Meth Head. If you put a Mormon and a Meth Head together, this is what they sound like. Aaron Woodall and just so read our friends. Listen to them talking to Mike. What is sacrament water? I that was I had off the top of my head. It's obvi- it's not the best choice, but it is something. That, the only thing that we would drink, we don't drink anything else. So sac, you know, Catholics have wine for communion, right? We had water, Jesus. So, it, but we didn't call never it communion. ceases to be lame. <laughs> Any chance we had to be cool? Sometimes though, sometimes for the bread, we'd have like sweet bread. You know, like you you guys ever had like, you know, like during like pioneer month or whenever the, you know, in the summer, some mom would make homemade bread. Oh, but what about the time when they made sweet bread? You guys remember that sacrament? Were you there? Were you there? It raises, I think that that starts a slippery slope, to be honest. Then that, I mean, what's next? What's next to, to use as, as the sacrament bread, Jessup, French bread? Huh? Gluten-free bread so that everyone can be included. Totino's pizza rolls. Technically, we could bless Totino's pizza rolls as consecrated pieces of Christ's flesh and then eat them, and that would count as sacrament. Technically. Well, they would be more like flesh than sweet bread. <laughs> Fuck. Jess. <laughs> oh. Oh. I just read this thing um, that... Uh, a friend of ours posted about like, hey, has anybody ever had their mind changed from a direct message <laughs> from, a, <laughs> from a from a current Mormon? <laughs> What's that? No, no one has. Has no one ever heard a story about like, yeah, I was out there living my heathen ways until a cousin I hadn't spoken to in three years sent me their testimony on Facebook. And invited me back to church, and that turned the whole thing around for me. Why hasn't that ever worked? Did you see the thing that someone posted in our group? It was from uh, a Quora. I don't know. Some sort of ask a question and answer thing. And somebody gave this detailed description of why uh, churches practice proselyting, uh, even though it doesn't yield converts. No. Oh, my God. Jessica, go look it up, because I'm going to butcher it. But it... I, I wholeheartedly agree with it. I have often said that like the church cares about sending guys on missions because it's converting them. It's getting them deeper into the church. And then that's going to persist for generations. Like that during the mission, they tell you like, as soon as you get home, you better get married. And as soon as you get married, you better have kids. And like people are locked into the church well before they're ever 26 years old and like start thinking for themselves, you know, like they are steeped in it. They've are, they've already gone through the temple, been on a mission, have the whole point of the mission is to lock those people into the church. That's what I, yeah, I've, I've often, because the numbers, the numbers, uh, why else are there missionaries? It doesn't make any sense. Like, uh, especially today, like in the internet age, we are still sending people out door to door 
in the, in the worst way possible, like just cold knocking. That's if you were caring about converting other people, if you were really trying in to, an age where we don't even call each other without sending a text first to say, can I call you? Yeah. Yeah. There's so many other ways you can re- like, they make movies, they, they make commercials, they do all these things like those are much better recruitment tools than just knocking on people's doors on Saturday mornings. It's it's not good, but it is good for the missionary. And like we even say that in the church. We talk about how like you are the real convert. Like you'll go out and be truly converted to the to the gospel and like your testimony will be strengthened. Like the mission is really about you. Like, but we say it in positive terms. If I'm speaking more cynically, and I do believe that that's true. Like my, my testimony got stronger. It was great. But like cynically now I look at it and say like, okay, so that's just like another brainwashing technique. Like it's right. a very intense one and that cost two years of my life. But, uh, it does. I, I see it like that now. Like I see the evil machinations behind why it's so important, why they would lower the age of missionaries to go is because they were losing too many people in their first year of college. They left home, spent a year alone, and then said, I don't want to serve a mission anymore. Right. And so they're like, let's just lower the age to 18. God changed his mind. Mm-hmm. Anyway, rant over. I like the word proselyting. You do? Mm-hmm. I just like the way it sounds like catalytic converter. Catalytic converter sounds way better than proselyting, but sliding, yeah. And I guess I don't like the pr at the beginning. Mm ministering yeah i never heard the word proselyting before i met you really yeah we called it evangelizing witnessing 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 that makes me think of mad max fury road and like you uh turning to your christian you see some some kids that you're gonna go witness to and then you turn to your christian friends and then take a silver can of spray paint and spray it into your mouth and say witness me and then run and teach those kids about the holy ghost interesting we just asked them if they knew jesus Mm. you didn't use the no spray paint okay all right I am uh, pretty excited for this episode. I know you are. What is the name of the subpersonality episode that we did back in the day? Sub, uh, what's what, my my yellow subpersonality? I don't remember. It's so weird that I don't remember the names of these episodes anymore. But, but you were on a kick back in the day? I was on a kick. So I have been on this kick multiple times in my life. So I'm going to do a recap of recap Jessa, it for us. Jessa meets subpersonalities. When I was 12 years old, I have to do this all the time. I was like um, an energy buildup in my hand. I have oh, to shake that? it out. Yeah. Okay. I was te- I was mimicking. Je- she was shaking her hand and I was mimicking her. What do you mean it's an energy I'm having all these weird new experiences. Like I told you how I keep snapping to turn my phone off. Like I don't know if that's yeah. like I'm tuned into a future timeline where that's a thing. And... I keep reaching out my hand for my, if my phone's like over on a table, I keep reaching out my hand for it to come, like without thinking, just being like, this come. is how the phone comes to my hand. It's really strange. But then I have this other thing where like the sense, the, the desire to crack your knuckles, how it feels like there's pr- like a pressure or something yeah. you need to relieve in your knuckles. I keep getting like. Excellent analogy. You knew I would understand that one. Yeah. I keep getting this need to just shake something off of my hands. I just keep catching. I, like, I'm not thinking about it. Yeah. Well, because you know I have the energy balls on my hands that I uh-huh. fuck with intermittently, 
And um, I thought you had been scolded before about sending energy balls just out into the universe willy-nilly. Yeah, well, that person is eating shit now because <laughs> the uh, process has turned out very similar to how I said I would turn out and not the way that he said it. So, mm. Okay. Um, Subpersonalities. By the way, when I was a kid, I did the same thing. I felt like I, I loved Star Wars and I felt like there was no way to know if I had the force unless I tried to use it and I would just sit and try to move cups. It's to not my even hands. like that. What? But I have done that because I got taught in my dreams how to move stuff. No, I'm not even consciously doing it. I reach out like I'm oh, busy no, doing I, something yeah. else and I reach out and then I'm like, why am I doing this? And I think it's just cause it's coming like the uh, telekinesis is close. It's on its way. And you know, I get to be a little bit ahead. That's the promise of the aliens. Um, is yeah. that I, I get to be one one D ahead in the, at least the info. <laughs> so that must they come always 16. feel special, uh, which makes sense. I mean, everything is we are a part of everything. So the high, the closer we get to realizing that, I wonder how many listeners we're going to lose with me just going balls out on this shit. It's been like a month of this shit. <laughs> uh, it uh, is all recorded Jess, in the Jess same. was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna have this soberish podcast where I can really go balls to the wall. And then ever since then, she's been like, because like the whole point was she was like, I'm nervous about going balls to the wall and Mormon on the meth head. And ever since then, though, Jess is like, I can't deny who I am. I can't. Once I let this out of the box, man, I got to do it everywhere. It just feels like it's happening very fast. And um, the amount of people messaging me and emailing me and being like, yes, this is happening Right now, I'm just like, yeah, it's fine. I, even if I sound crazy, I'll sound crazy for a couple months, and then people will months, be like, "Months, really? It's going fast, yeah." Bold prediction. I feel like twenty this time next year is going to be bananas. It's going to be a completely, completely different world. Completely it's what different it feels world. Like I don't this know. time next year, I don't want to challenge reality to doing something so overly fear based that everyone goes back to sleep. But I think it feels it feels like you can't unring this bell at this point. Nice. Okay. So we'll see. It feels like critical mass. It feels like we hit critical mass and there's no one doing it. And I could be wrong. We're going to do a follow-up episode this time next year. Yeah, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be judging BFP and like telekinesing <laughs> our phones. <laughs> just zipping our phones yeah, across the room. Yeah, we're just snapping our finger and the, the spotlight comes on. Oh my God. I'll just be, I'll be levitating. I'll be levitating while judging. Oh. All right. Okay. So I think this is an important part of it, but it's also an important mental health thing. So when I was 12 years old, I left my mom's and I moved to my dad's house. And this is so weird because I remember feeling like when I was doing this stuff, it was for attention, but I was doing it alone and no one ever saw it. But there was a voice inside of me that was driven by this will show them. There was just this constant, this will show them. I used to fantasize about killing myself so that I could watch people cry at my funeral. I think there's a possibility that oh. if you could have well, guaranteed you're banking me. banking on being able to watch. You don't know Yeah, what if happens. you could have guaranteed me that I could watch, I may have been suicidal. Really? Yeah. I had the same kind of like martyred fantasy. I don't know if martyr is the right word to use there, but just, yeah. They'll miss me when I'm gone. Yeah, it's got to be like trauma, right? And now that I look back and I see how many things in my life came from trying to get people to realize I was being molested, that this attention-seeking... But I hated the attention-seeking part of myself. I hated the manipulative part of myself. I hated all these things about myself that were created as a child to try to get 
adults to realize what was happening, right? And uh, because I lived in a home where I wasn't allowed to make facial expressions of disappointment, I wasn't allowed to ask why, I wasn't allowed to have emotions, period. I felt unwanted. I had been abandoned by my mom. I had been abandoned by my dad. I became someone who can't be honest about her needs and I became someone who manipulates to get her needs met or can't be honest about the fact that she is vulnerable or has needs whatever this is the shit we've been unpacking for the last year and a half but fuck you I didn't you know but I don't think you should skip you don't have to speed through that that's all uh very it's interesting and very important stuff yeah I did like you've you've talked about how you don't know the response you're gonna get out of your mom and like that you would get yelled at for uh, asking the wrong question or making a facial expression. Yeah, if my mom said no, I w- like quickly learned not to ask my mom for things. But moving in with my mom after living with my dad, I think I was like six and I think I had like a more, you know, like I could communicate with my dad. And then my mom just had, my, mom, my grandma was a piece of shit. So my mom was high on speed and then also was... Um, just, you know, was she was raised by a monster. So uh, she would, I would say, can I do this in the beginning? And she would say no. And then if I said why, it was this, don't you fucking disrespect me because I fucking said no. And then if I would make a, a face of disappointment, she would get that fucking look off your face. Now, all this being said, my mom lives with me. She takes care of my kids. She, we've talked a lot about this stuff lately and she's like, I don't remember any of this. I don't remember it being like that. I wanted you. I didn't. I was excited to get you back. I must've just been like high and grouchy or whatever. Like I thought you were great. I didn't, I didn't hate you. I just didn't know how to be a mom, I guess. But like, I don't remember any of this. And I think that that's true. I don't think in her head, it was the culture. First of all, she came from like children are to be seen and not heard. And everything was a challenge to her respect, which was also the culture in the 80s, you know, that adults were to be respected. My mother never was like, sorry, I lost my temper. If, it, if an adult lost their temper with a kid in the 80s, then, you know, you double down because if you tell the kid you're sorry, then like they're, they're you know. They haven't learned anything. Right, exactly. You don't want to spoil Then kids. I yelled for no reason. And what I realized recently and then my therapist insists on bringing back up over and over and over again is my mom left when I was two and my dad says that I just thought my mom was upstairs and was up in the sky in an airplane for three years when I was five I asked my dad how come I didn't get a mom and my dad in this big guilty moment was like oh my god my daughter needs her mother because it's the fucking you know 80s and it's like you know girls need their mom whatever okay and so he's heartbroken but then he takes me to my mom well i don't know this lady it's been three years like i don't know who the fuck this is and then he just leaves me there and in his head this is the right thing to do but i don't know who this is i don't know this house i'm five and now that I have a five-year-old, I'm like, I must have been terrified. Did you have a conversation with him? Did he say anything? Or did he just I like... don't remember it. I only, like, I have memories of it, but I'm positive that the memories come from being told the story so many times. Okay. And so throughout childhood, I can, I have a picture in my mind of the conversation that led to him taking me to my mom's. But in this breakup, I've learned a lot about 
the aban- like how crushing abandonment is, how crushing not being wanted is. It's overwhelming. And I followed that back to what, like I look at Lily, Lily's five. If Lily only knew Jason. And then also my mom was scratchy. Like my mom was scratchy and mean and harsh and, and the trailer was gross and cold and my dad, my house with my dad, I do remember it was nice and everyone was nice and I went to a nice tr- daycare and now I'm in a gross trailer park with kids who cuss and smoke cigarettes and, and I just was like thrust into this completely different world overnight. My dad stayed for a couple of days and then I must have just laid in that bed and waited for my dad to come back and get me. There's no way I understood. I don't, what I remember is cold mornings in this trailer. My mom wouldn't wake up to make me food or whatever. Like my dad did everything for me. And then I remember having to make my own breakfast. I remember there being ants in the cereal. I remember pouring the cereal and like figuring this all out by myself. I remember pouring the cereal in the bowl and then pouring the milk into the bowl and then just sitting there waiting. I'm five until the ants float to the top and then picking the ants out. And then the TV was this tiny, tiny TV that didn't have a handle. So then I would spend like a half an hour trying to get the needle nose pliers to turn the TV on. And then just sitting there in this trailer and feeling like I would like to go home, but I can't go home. And I I felt like I wasn't allowed to go home. And, um, I remember going back to my dad's in the summer. No, then my dad came out a few months later because I think I must have gone there in August. And then in February for my birthday, my dad came out for my birthday. And before I stole all the pictures when I was on meth, there's a picture of me realizing that my dad was there for my birthday, that it was a surprise. Oh my God. And I go running up into his arms. And then I remember him taking me to Mount Hood, I think. And he bought me this. Oh, fuck. I just remember. Baby. It's weird when you unlock a piece of trauma, how many memories come back like the. Like is trauma like a bunch of little file cabinets where it keeps all your memories and until you unlock that piece of trauma, you don't, I didn't know until like a month ago, like, of course I felt abandoned by my dad. Of course I felt, of course that's where the fear of abandonment came from. I just hold my dad up on a pedestal. So I'm like, my dad did nothing wrong. You know, like, I'm I not have saying, a great, re- yeah. yeah so- I'm not saying he did anything wrong, but of course, five year old, it was the only parent I ever knew. And from what I've heard, she wasn't that great before he, before she left, you know? So of course I felt abandoned by her, which I just considered recently that was like, oh, I bet two year old me, I bet that's where my, uh, object permanence issues come from is like right around the time that that's developing. My mom disappeared. Um, he yeah, took cruel me cruel timing. Yeah. <laughs> he took me up to Mount Hood and I remember he got me this rabbit pelt. A rabbit pelt? Yeah, and it had a foot on it and I slept with that rabbit pelt every night and thought about my dad and I remember thinking that rabbit feet were magic and that I could go with my dad if he...
it was bananas that I didn't remember this. I just like opened up to the possibility and then was like, okay, yeah, of course you felt that way. And then that was like a month ago. And now all these pieces of that first year are coming back to me. It's so. What did you wish on your rabbit's foot? That he would come back and get me. Did you have a I remember child? thinking that I couldn't go home and because I had been told that I asked to go with her, I like generated like, oh, I must have thought I couldn't go home because I asked to be with her. But I don't think I understood that I asked to be with her. I think I thought he didn't want me. And I don't think I became fixated on determining whether or not I was wanted because she was mean, I think. I just kept getting left. And um, and then also she was mean. And so I didn't feel wanted by her. This didn't feel like, you know. I don't remember ever feeling like this is my mom. I remember feeling like. This is a lady that my dad got me. This is a lady me. that my dad got me. And um, I remember my dad coming for my birthday and, and doing that stuff. And then I remember when he left. Being like, oh, he wasn't here to get me. Uh, and then I started going out there. At, Did you ever say anything to your mom? No. Did you ever have phone calls where you could tell your dad? I didn't. That's why I never I never told him. I thought I, he, I wasn't wanted. So I can't. Ask. Ask to go home. He, if he wanted me at home, I'd be at home. I think that's a that's a big thing for you about uh asking and feeling unwanted. Just yeah. 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 Something to if think about. You wanted me, you'd come get me. Uh hmm. so um In all the guilt and shame about codependency, uh, the last therapy session I had was just like everything. I didn't feel like I was doing this, but everything I said, she was like, this is codependent what you're doing. Like, this is just, you're just blaming yourself and blaming yourself and blaming yourself and blaming yourself. Like, there's no forgiveness for yourself and anything that you're saying right now. You understand that these are survival mechanisms that you created to survive in a situation that a kid cannot comprehend. You're a child who depends on your parents for life and got left by both of your parents. You got left by a parent and probably around the time you became okay with being left by a parent, you got left by another parent and you got left in an environment that was scary and harsh compared to the environment that you were in previously. I want to say that my parents are amazing people and this makes me uh, feel bad to talk about this stuff because, um, I mean, obviously I went on to leave a child also, but um, this is just divorce stuff. I mean, this isn't even like, my parents lived on the opposite coast. This was divorce stuff. I think now we're more aware of the fact that I wouldn't send 
you know, that we would have to be very gentle and delicate in sending our kids to go live across the country with another parent. I think back then it was like, that's her mom. We weren't thinking like, oh, that's her mom that she doesn't know. You know what I mean? And my mom was fucked up. So she had to leave. She's fucked up on drugs. Um, so I just want that out there. My dad sure, is amazing sure. and belongs on his pedestal. But um, I've hated these things about myself. I've hated these defense mechanisms. I spent so some defense mechanisms that you created as a result of this were that you had to you couldn't ask for what you wanted. I never. I became I extremely manipulative. And when I the word manipulative is triggering for me because it's got such a negative connotation. So you have like narcissists are manipulative to, you know, take things from people. And ultimately narcissists are also, you know, traumatized individuals. But, um, I just couldn't get my needs met by directly asking for anything. It was met with abandonment. I was afraid of being left and I was afraid of taking up too much space and um, and I never knew the response I was going to get from my mom. So I became progressively more manipulative. And so I became someone who wouldn't directly ask for anything. I would talk about things in a way that would make people want to give them to me. And by things, I just mean love. <laughs> like, <laughs> n- not... not big riches or anything, but I just became more and more and more afraid of everything really, but rejection, abandonment. And, um, then I started getting sexually abused and then the attention seeking started. And when the attention seeking started, cause it's a pretty, introverted kid before my memories of myself were pretty chill. And when I started getting molested and I'm like a year into living with my mom, so I'm already starting to be manipulative. I started getting molested and I became obsessed with getting attention. And until the last year, that's just always something I've been ashamed of in my past. It was just like uh, embarrassing that I was a compulsive liar to get attention, embarrassing all these things I did to get attention. I would like fake faint at school. I faked hallucinations to get put in a mental hospital. Like I hate, you know, they're funny, but they're, they're actually something I'm ashamed of. And it wasn't until very recently that I was like, Oh, it was because nobody would do anything about me getting molested. And I was trying to let people know I was being molested. I was trying to get attention. I developed this voice in my head that was like, this will show them. This will show them. Like I was driven to like show them and I, who them are. I don't know. Like, um, and so when I was six, I went back to my dad's for Christmas and that's the Christmas where I pretended to be a dog the entire time. Yes. So I'm already getting molested at this point. And yeah, when I think about like what my thoughts were when I was doing that, it was to get atten- like but I wasn't thinking this will get attention. This was like this will show them, you know. And I didn't understand that thought process. Um so flash forward, I'm sure we'll unearth more of my trauma as it comes up, but flash forward I hear you have an infinite onion of it. I do have an infinite onion and also a duffel bag of feelings about it. I got to 12 years old. 12 was a rough year. 12 was a rough year. I'm going through 
puberty, my mom moved an evil tweaker into the house with her evil kids. And my mom was like making crack in the basement. So my mom wasn't around much, but this evil cunt that she had living in the house was, was abusing me. And then telling my mom that I was doing all this awful shit that her shit shitty kids were actually doing. I had to share a room with one of her shitty kids who would spit uh, loogies into my face while I slept and uh, made me drink a bottle of hairspray once. Um, Jesus. Uh, I didn't swallow the bottle of hairspray, but she poured a bottle of hairspray, like held me down and poured a bottle of hairspray in my mouth. She would sit over top of me and do that spit sucking in thing. So my relationship with spit, I'm sure, is connected to that. Um. Her brother's the one that peed in my sister's bathtub. Right. They were a nightmare. And then the the situation where my mom called me a liar and a cheat, and I can't believe you're my daughter after I got beat up at school. This is all this bitch instigated all this stuff. And um, I call my dad. I ask if I can go home. I get back to, I get to Delaware. I was already, I would go there for the summers, but this summer I was like, uh, I'm coming back to live. I'm old enough to know that that's an option. He's floated that to me a few times at this point. And I really just didn't want to leave my sister in that environment, but I had to, it was, it was, I couldn't live like that anymore. And, um, I get to Delaware and I just remember things like sitting, like I changed my name to Jessa and I remember writing like letters to baby Jessica and Jessica and being like, you're dead. You're dead no one will ever see you again. You were weak. You let all of these things happen. You will never see the light of day again. And, um, it felt performative. I don't know. There was something about like I was observing myself doing it. So it felt strange, but like nobody else ever saw that I did that. You know, I don't know if and I when you say you allowed all this stuff to happen, you were like openly talking to yourself about the, molestation and stuff yeah i felt like there was a a stronger part of me taking over and i like exiling is a great word this weak part of myself and i remember feeling more powerful and more strong and kind of adopting these other traits and attributes And there wasn't a ton of evidence of that. Like I can look back and see that I was still repeatedly getting hurt. You know, all of my like sexual experiences when I was young, even the Red Sox thing, I mean, is just uh, me thinking people liked me and then like realizing once it had started that I was being used for sex. Huh. Um, You leave that part out. It's not a funny bit. <laughs> it's not a funny bit. If I was like a normal person would have been like, take a picture. But I was like, oh, I should just go hang out with this one guy at a motel room so he can pass me around with his friends. Wait, did you only think one of the guys like when you went back to the motel room? You've never told me this part. I know. It's sad. So you just talked to this one guy that night? And yeah, I drove them all back. I thought him. we were all going to hang out and that we were just hanging out in one bed while everyone else was fucking around in the room. And then, uh, yeah, I couldn't admit before this podcast. Um, so we hooked up a little bit and then I kind of like sucked his dick or whatever. And then he just kind of like got up for a second and someone else got in the bed and I felt like, oh, I uh, can't leave. Like I did this. Why did I do this? Um, 
and then like there's just like a part of me that's like just be cool just be cool and it's funny and uh and right then in there in the bed is when you decided it was going to be funny mm-hmm. that's such a wow yeah like because like, the, the story if you guys don't know that you that she tells on stage is like uh i did this to be funny yeah. i will i will suck a baseball team's dicks and uh I'm loving season three so far where <laughs> Jessa cries and breaks all this is, I didn't know you had any secrets left. Uh, I think I have exciting. a ton. I, cause I feel like they were secrets from myself. Cause Dixie you told yourself me. the story. Dixie called me. And by then I had already like sucked four dicks and wanted to leave and didn't think I could leave. And, uh, just the the body language of the guys and the way that they just came up that I was like, oh, of course, that's what I'm here for. What an idiot that I thought this guy liked me. And uh, then Dixie called and was like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, that's so funny. And um, I kept it a secret. Like I kept it a secret because it was embarrassing. And then Dixie ended up telling everyone like a year later. Fucking bitch. And then I, it just, then it, took on a legend of you know oh i thought it was funny because i would never admit that all of the men that have ever fucked me while i was passed out took something that wasn't theirs that the 32 year old man that would fuck me when i was 15 passed out at his roommate's house took something that wasn't his i never could admit any of that stuff to myself till we started this podcast and i was like oh i was a kid there were men just fucking me i wasn't seducing these men these were men taking advantage of me. Jessa, you've never said that. Jessa, you have always said I was seducing these guys and you played it as, even with me as like a sexy. I really thought that. And now I look back and I'm like. That I've, I think everyone's bummed out but me right now. <laughs> I have the biggest grin on my face. I'm very proud of you. I'm very proud of you. For I'm getting s- like hella raped a bunch of times? <laughs> no, for making jokes about it. Are you kidding me? Have you heard her bits? It's like incredible that it came from something that sad. That's, uh, it's amazing. No, of course. I'm proud that you're making these realizations, Jessa. These are huge for you. This is like the most honest you've ever felt. It's amazing. So I, um, yeah, I think I've been rejected a million times. I think I've, uh, most of the times I've ever had sex in my life were me thinking that like, Not post-marriage, but like me thinking that someone liked me and then getting pressured into sex and then like realizing like they don't like me or they're never going to talk to me again. And then I would just cry and want to get out of the sex because uh, that feels pretty familiar. And that's why you were crying? I think it was a combination of things, yeah. But I think... um and then I would just I would just build on my legend that I don't care. I don't care. I don't care what anyone does. I don't have feelings because I don't think I could deal with the feelings. And um, 
Yeah, so I think I was still very, like after 12, was still very Pisces, if you will. Was still very emotional, (sighs) but became increasingly less able to feel those feelings. I became someone that if I had a feeling, you can't see it. You know, I just go, like my face goes, I smile or act like I don't care. And, um, I think back, there were a lot of awful things that happened in when the guy had sex with me, when I stopped by his house that my friend took me to, and I was drunk in the middle of the day by the high school. And then I really thought he liked me and I went back to get my wallet the next day, but I was also like excited to see him, you know, cause I felt like we really, uh, hit it off or whatever. He was so nice. He was so nice when he fucked me on his waterbed with no sheets. <laughs> on. <laughs> and then when I went back and I didn't cry, I don't think that time, I don't know. I don't remember that whole thing, but I remember thinking like, I can't wait to see him again. And then when I got there, there was a party of like the football players and the cheerleaders, the people yeah. that would never talk to me. And then he kicked me down a flight of stairs or one of his friends kicked me down a flight of stairs. And I remember just coming out of that house while everyone's like throwing rotten apples at me and stuff. And there was no emotion. Like I was heartbroken. I can think back and I was like, I was heartbroken. I was humiliated and I was like sad and they got scared by one uh, black dude, which was pretty fantastic to watch like 13 of them run back in the house when a guy who I knew saw what was happening and was like, yo. And then they all ran back in the house like the fucking pussies that they are. But I remember not react like I wasn't by that point. And I'm like 15. I'm not reacting. I'm just numb, numb. I am getting fucked by the man who I'm babysitting for by then I'm getting fucked by his friend. And I'm like, Oh, I did it for a 40. And, uh, I didn't, I did it cause I thought he liked me. And, um, I mean, I said I did it for a 40. I can look back now. I can look back now that I can see behind the veil of my fear of abandonment. And now I can see all the times that I wasn't loved and couldn't deal with it. And so I just wouldn't perceive it. And I think I forgot to say this on duffel bag full of feelings, but I have so many PTSD symptoms right now. Like, the guy was ringing the or the blowing the whistle at the airport, and I was like, uh, climbing out of my skin. You, if you're not like announcing where you're at in this condo, I've like jumped several times. Um, all these memories are flooding back that I've had hidden behind this like armor of I don't care, I just take my lumps, it doesn't matter, I got it, you know. And like now I'm just seeing like trauma on trauma on trauma on trauma. I just got up after getting wake. I wake up at 15 years old to getting fucked by some 32 year old. And I just like get up and light a cigarette and um, blame myself for it. But like can't even hear shame. I don't have a category of reason for shame. So I'm just like, oh, that's hilarious that you were fucking me, dude. And, uh, wow. And 
anyway, at 12, I, I exiled Jessica. And I guess now I, I look back and I see evidence of Jessica not getting a voice. Like Jessa, the character named Jessa, which I don't think I came up with a name for a couple of years. I think I tried to get people to call me Jesse because my family called me Jesse. There was definitely like, she's dead. She's gone. And um, I developed this persona of someone that doesn't care what people do to me. And um, there were times where I was emotional, but they, now I look back and those were all codependent activation. I never got vulnerable again. Um, I had two speeds, this hard shell. And then if you did get close enough to me, I would get codependently activated, which is also not vulnerability. It's like an attempt at vulnerability met with compulsion and obsession and fear and meltdowns and, uh, chasing you to the door and then trying to beat you to the door and then begging you to come back in the door and, you know, trauma. Anyway, I, at 14, ended up in a mental hospital. And when I got to the mental hospital, I was like, all right, I think there's many people inside my head. And I was fixated on this idea of multiple personality disorder. I was convinced I had it because I could hear all these different voices, like not audible voices, but I could feel these different characters inside of me. And I could kind of tell that like this tough exterior existed, right? And it existed and it was, it was very different than Jessica, And I could still feel Jessica in there, but especially when I was that young, but she wasn't allowed to talk. Like I felt like I was consciously aware of the fact that I had exiled her. This is how old? 14. What got you sent there? What'd you do? I lost my virginity. This was a strange, I decided one day that I will lose my virginity now And I asked the time has come a boy who hated me. It's like my arch nemesis in class. You know, the kid who's like 16 in eighth grade. And I was like, I want to lose my virginity. Can I come to your house and lose my virginity at your house tonight? That's how you phrased it. And he was like, okay. And then I went to his house. Why do you think you picked the, your arch nemesis? I don't know. It's very strange. And I was, I said it exactly like that too. And he was like, Uh, okay. And then I got to his house and he fucked me very rough for a person who hadn't lost her virginity yet. And, um, but you know, 16 year olds be 16 year olds. And the trauma. Now I look back and I'm like, Oh, okay. I just needed someone to know what was happening inside of me. I can't even describe the feeling. I felt so ashamed. I can't describe it now. Ashamed. I, I, I was in crisis. I was in crisis once I had sex. I felt like I wanted to die. I felt like I had made the biggest mistake in my life. I felt like I was a monster. I felt humiliated. I had like a million awful feelings and it felt like a million alarms going off at once. And um, I was up in my bed and I remember taking off my 
panties and they were bloody. And then I remember screaming and then laying in the bed and then just like thrashing and screaming. And this is difficult to unpack because I've, I've stored this memory one way when it was happening. Then I had to go back and unpack it under the narrative that I'm just a lying piece of shit. And then now I'm unpacking it under the narrative of I was traumatized. Why the lying piece of shit? So when they get upstairs, I tell them. Also, I had been in therapy for a year and it was very helpful. And okay. they were taking me out of therapy. Oddly enough, my last therapy session was Wednesday. And on Friday, I told this boy I wanted to have sex with him. I don't know if those two things are connected. It was a sudden decision that I was like, I will lose my virginity this weekend. Huh. I, and there was nothing sexual about it. It was a very sad, uh, weird thing. And so I'm thrashing in the bed and my stepmom comes upstairs and I think it was my dad. I this a little bit cloudy, but she was like, what's happening? And I'm screaming, Frank, get off of me. Frank, get off of me. Frank, get off of me. Oh my God. And there was definitely a narrative in my head of, this will show them, right? This was the attention okay. seeker, right? Which feels separate from the one that exiled Jessica. Okay. Similar vibe. And this part of me was just constantly driven to control the perception of everyone around me, I guess. And, um, but this feeling that I had where I'm thrashing and I'm screaming, Frank, get off of me. Like I look back now and I'm like, that was re- like, that was a real thing happening inside of me. Um, but I'm not hallucinating that Frank is on top of me, but it was like, this is the behavior that matches the feeling inside of me right now. Absolutely. That makes total sense. And then she's like, I don't know what this is about. My dad rushes home and then they call my therapist and they're like, what is What is this that's happening? They take me into my therapist. And I was like, the guy that molested me actually raped me when I was seven. And, um, now I see him everywhere. Wow. <laughs> I am putting this together now. Um, and for the rest of this experience, I did see him everywhere. I did feel haunted by him. And I knew that I didn't get raped. I felt like I knew that I didn't get raped. But there was something that I used to do where if I changed the version of reality, it was like... I feel like if you were intuitive and tried to listen to... Me, like I could pass a lie detector test. Intu- intuition probably wouldn't work but like i just would believe stuff of course um this was something it took me a long time to um work on myself also but after after you said that you were seeing him was that different from the way that you believed that you had been raped or like uh because you made it sound like it then re- actually came true you know what's really strange is that I still have the memory of being raped by Frank. And the reason that I know I wasn't raped by Frank is because there was blood in my underwear. That's the only reason I know that I don't, that I wasn't raped. But I know that I can generate memories, right? It was like, if yeah. I'm like, where did I lose my keys? Did I leave them on the bed? I'll generate a memory of leaving them on the bed. I know that's how my brain is. So, uh, but I felt like since I bled when I had sex that I obviously had never been raped. But I can tell you what the lamp looked like uh, that I stared at while it happened. I can uh, tell you what his breath felt like. Um, and I can tell you what his chest hair felt like. And you're sure you weren't raped? 
not, I'm sorry to make you question. I'm I don't not trying think you to. can grow a hymen back. I don't know. Okay. I've really not fucked with this memory at all. But it's just, like, I just didn't know. I, I'm yeah. just impressed by the, the quality of the generated memory. That's all I meant. It's yeah, just no, like, as I'm could, talking about, I haven't, po- I haven't pulled this memory up in a long time, but I remember the feeling of the chest hair on me. Uh, yo, that will be crazy. <laughs> if I fucking did get a repressed like did well because i remember that repressed memory syndrome had been getting a bunch of play on oprah and i remember like years later being like i made that up i made that up i saw a repressed memory syndrome on oprah i made that up because i'm a monster that wants attention whatever so here's what now as i'm talking about this because i don't talk about this very often i'm realizing uh frank at the I can't get that chest hair fucking off my face feeling right now. At the minimum, this dude molested me. At the minimum, this dude finger banged me uh, multiple times and ground me into his dick and, and made me think I peed myself so that he could touch my vagina. At the minimum, this dude molested me for three years. And um, he is a ghost that haunts me whenever I have sex. Most times that I have sex with most people that I have sex. That's why I can't have sex with most people. And um, I think I had sex for the first time having such a wicked deja vu right now. When you say a ghost that haunts me, do you just mean it brings back feelings when you have sex? Yeah. I'm fully triggered back into that, which I didn't know until recently. But um, maybe I had sex for the first time and I did feel I had all these frank feelings and I didn't have words or a category of reason or anything else and so I acted out with this hallucination thing because I was feeling attacked by Frank and I had already told everybody that I got molested for three years and nothing fucking happened and so uh maybe I felt like I needed to blow the story out of proportion to get some fucking attention so that people would listen that I'm actually traumatized by what this person did to me. That's my last, my most recent narrative. I'm now suddenly like, did I get fucking, I have to Google to see if your hymen can come back. Cause that was really the reason that I was like, this isn't true. I have, you know, I don't know anything about hymen. So, uh, I, there was definitely blood. I mean, could have been cause the guy fucked me violently, but, um, anyway, this went way darker than I was planning on this going. Jessa, this is the one. This is the best episode we've ever done. It's a infinite onion, man. Jesus Christ! I feel like I have access to all of my memories in a way that are, is real and not the stories that I've told. It's incredible. That's why I keep asking for more details. Every time I ask a question, you just dig deeper. I can feel this. The chest here was like he was. It was soft. It was like, not like, cause he was old, you know, it was like soft, uh, on my mouth. Is that where a man's chest would be? Uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. And I remember just staring at the, like my face to the side and staring through his arm to the lamp. Hmm. Fuck. Fuck. Can you re-repress a memory? <laughs> anyway, I think I, I believed myself to be fully full of shit at all times because I was making a lot of stuff up. So this time, you feel like you know that you're lying, but you're going along, you're convincing yourself of it. 
Yeah, I can't even really, I'd have to think about it a lot more. I know within a couple of years, I confess to my husband when I get married a couple years after this, <laughs> that I lied about getting raped. And it, it was such a huge theme. It like took over my entire family because then I'm in and out of the mental hospital for a solid year. And I look back now and I'm like, oh, I did have PTSD. I was not making, I was fucked up. I was fucked up. And I just in my head was like, you're not, all these people are giving you attention and you're so full of shit. And you know, there was like that voice, that voice who existed away from these other two. So now we have a boss person who exiled Jessa. Then we have attention seeker who just says this will show them about everything. And then we have critical companion, I guess, who's just like, this is all, everything you say is a fucking lie. Okay. So when you're, when you show up at this mental hospital, you are you telling about these four? You're like, I've got, I've got these things. I remember taking the Rorschach test and trying to convince them that I was crazy. Like I was trying to, I was trying to say the craziest shit. Like you know, it's like the butterfly pictures or whatever. And yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. like, that's a little girl getting raped by. You know, they're all like really violent. All of my things were really violent. I remember feeling like they need to know how fucked up I am. Like I was going out of my way to be violent. I spent a lot of time getting carried to the quiet room which is you get strapped face down in a bed with like leather restraints. I think we've done an episode on this before. We've, talk, we've mentioned it. Yeah. Um, I loved acting out. I loved throwing their shit. I loved, I think there was like so much pent up anger. Like we just talked about, like there was, there was a lot in me to get out. Yeah, man. And I got out after 30 days, but while I was in there, I was like, there are many of me inside of me. And I was fixated on multiple personalities. I like, um, I don't want to say read books, but like idolized something about that. There was something about that. Like I was trying to find repressed memories was something I circled. This was something I circled. And now in 2019, I can look back and be like, no, you were onto something. You were onto something. You were trying to find yourself. But in my head, I was like, this is just me being crazy. This is just me trying to get attention. So they tell me that's not a thing that if I had multiple personalities, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't know that I had multiple personalities. Then apparently a few years later, they stole my idea and started this internal family systems thing. Which thanks to who was the person who posted about it? I don't remember uh, your name, but someone Roz something. I think Roz posted it. Oh, okay. So it's really interesting because then when I, um, I feel like if I kept talking, I was just going to unearth a bunch more cool trauma, but we have time to get. To Do you want to? No, I just, I can't, like, I feel like I can feel that hair on my face right now. It's freaking me the fuck. Like, how would I remember that? How would I generate that sensation? I can't feel myself getting raped. I mean, just throwing out things. What if you did feel his chest hair up against you at one point? What if there, you know, you did look at this lamp at one point and when you were creating this, the memory in your head, you borrowed from actual ones, right? And you took a piece of this and a piece of that and then yeah. made it. Maybe you're just really good at generating memories. And maybe you s sold it to yourself so many times that it stuck in there. Maybe it really happened. I guess it doesn't matter, right? But, uh, <sighs> I think stuff like that matters. I feel like I've said that a couple yeah. times over shit that really matters, but yeah. 
that would be a complicated mind if I unearthed a repressed memory but hated myself so much that I wouldn't even give myself the opportunity to actually heal. Fuck. Um, when I died and, and came back, the aliens said that one of the first things that needed to happen was that you, I needed to f- like write out my cast of characters is what they called it. And they said that there were a bunch of us that live inside of us and that we needed to know who all of them were so that I could control who is at the controls when. And there was a point where I did it. I remember I typed it out on my sister's computer and there was for a while I understood who all the different versions of myself were. It's just one of these like... Right after alien school? Mm-hmm. During alien school, yeah. So there was like that four years, but there was a lot. There was a lot. I learned a lot. A lot of it's coming back to me now because it's relevant now. So I'm just like, oh yeah, they said this. They said this. Weirdly, I was just flipping through this IFS book and I'm like, God damn, I feel like I already read this book. So I think this was... Well, uh, yeah, the, the, from what I read, that was a very they use a very similar analogy to what the aliens told you. Yeah. Uh, or maybe, I mean, not a similar analogy, but anyway, the way they describe it. So this book, uh, Internal Family Systems, is about... Um, it's written for therapists, which I love. And it talks about, well, so no, so last year I, it started again. It, me tuning into the different voices started yes, again. Yes, yes, yes. Because there was a lot, I think it's so, when you, here's me not finished starting, not finishing <laughs> sentences. I think when you tell people that every thought that is in their head is one stream of consciousness, when you believe that to be true, how do you not listen to the critical companion because you believe the critical companion to be the same version of you that is saying other things? Like, how do you tell them apart if you haven't found a way to isolate them, figure out who is who, figure out what their motive is, figure out what their drive is, and then figure out how to control who comes to the helm when? So... Which is something I'm trying to work on right now. Exactly. But even when like we were talking about the ego and stuff, it's it's more than just the ego and the higher self. There's way more in there. And what this kind of journey between you and I triggered and brought up was there was dormant pieces of myself. The thing that I kept talking about, the Aubrey Plaza version of myself. I hadn't seen that bitch in a really long she time. She was a protector, right? She was a protector. Uh, the first time that she attacked you was a time where you had been distant for a little bit and then you came back up, you came back around and were being nice. And then I just, my body language changes, my eyes kind of glaze over and I just started being cruel for something. It was just like, yeah, I need to work with someone who like, I don't remember what it was. It was something about work. Yeah. You I'm sure you remember you who it was. Uh, <laughs> Nick Camina. <laughs> You said oh, yeah. you were gonna w- go work with Nick Gamine instead of me. And then I remember you like crying, like we were we were going back and forth via polo, and I remember you crying and saying, "I don't feel safe with you." And then something snapped, where like I clicked into a different one and was like, "Oh my god, oh my god!" But I remember you sending like polo after polo of like, "Please stop! What are you doing? What are you doing?" And I just was. Oh yeah, it did. I did send. I was like, yeah. And I couldn't, I was being so mean 
And, but I, I, like, I can feel what my body felt like when I was doing that. I can feel the way my eyes are when she is, uh, like, I feel like I can do it right now. Yeah. The way that I, her eyes are. Yeah. I'm getting flashbacks. Uh, Please stop. Um, and there were others, th- there was a breakup one time, one of our, like one of them before we ever got together, there was a, one of our breakups before we got together Uh and I can't remember what it was at the end of it, but I remember getting out of my car and shutting the door. And then I, the way I was walking, I was walking like that Aubrey Plaza character. Uh, For people that don't know, I'm not talking about Aubrey Plaza. I'm talking about the character that she plays in Legion, Uh which incidentally is about a bunch of people that live in this dude's head. Exactly. Exactly. Very interesting. Very, very. And we talked about it a lot uh, on early like season one of the podcast but i i i just like to think of Ari plaza as like the patron protective saint of all delaware girls <laughs> like every 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 single per every single girl who got abused in delaware and then created split personalities has Aubrey plaza in her head to defend her so here are some of Aubrey plaza maybe this might, might end up being a little bit of a patreon uh yeah if, d- if you well, what 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 time un- are we unpack at? that unpack this shit i feel like there's a lot coming out right now we're at 56 minutes already okay well then uh yeah i think if we whenever we can milk a patreon episode (laughs) out of it absolutely i mean i'm not saying right now but i i like right now all these things are i'm having a paradigm shift oh do you want to document this paradigm shift yeah i do i do want to document this paradigm shift um after that me being very cruel to you that day this was the beginning of me being like what the fuck was that uh, I was already codependently activated, but didn't it wasn't it hadn't become super bad yet. And this was the first like episode. This was the first episode where when left alone for while you took distance, um, I would get super activated and then by the time you got back, it was Aubrey Plaza was waiting for you. At the end of the baseball game. (laughs) At the end of the baseball game. And you were being so sweet and nice and uh, it was too late. The... I have a memory of one time. This is when I got really into subpersonalities because I remember seeing you and I remember feeling a part of me running towards you and then Aubrey Plaza just dead-faced putting her arm out and holding that version of me back. And I remember being like, what the fuck is happening inside of me? I felt myself like not being able to connect with you uh, because she was like, no. Mm-mm. So Aubrey Plaza, some of her greatest moments. I believe Aubrey Plaza is is the one that exiled Jessica. I believe that Aubrey Plaza, I believe that you and whatever cosmic connection you came along for triggered Jessica to uh, one out of this dungeon i had her locked in i believe that you connect with that version of me that's why i don't experience sexual trauma and stuff with you um and so you're the enemy of aubrey of plaza aubrey plaza, aubrey plaza because exists. i'm because i'm gonna get jessica out mm-hmm. hmm. and then that whole process with all those anxiety weekends and everything else on top of the codependency but this process this thing that was happening because there was like at the end of season two i was like i feel like i got my inner child out of a basement somewhere and the inner child has the duffel bag full of feelings. So Dude, you have so many good catchphrases I know. That are just <laughs> building on top of each other. You know how to fucking market yourself. <laughs> I love it. When is your book coming out? <laughs> when wow. I write it, you sound like my book agents. 
Ooh, I forgot to write them back. Um, <laughs> so, Dude, I gotta write a book. I can't even write you guys back. Uh, yeah. Aubrey Plaza. Making, yeah. All right. Go ahead. Uh, left my mom. I left my mom. I wrote a poem about my mom. Yes. And mailed it to her. Maybe framed it. And you sent did it to her. frame it. Got it published in a book. And I did a lot. Aubrey Plaza did a lot to torture my mom. I remember going missing for a couple years on meth and then showing up and getting in a fight with her about the perfect storm and being like the perfect storm didn't didn't happen. And, uh, <laughs> that might not have the, been Aubrey Plaza. The, hold on, hold on, hold on. The storm that inspired the movie or the movie itself? What what did you the say? The movie that, happened, but then it was just propaganda. It was just propaganda. Yeah. There was never no. I was like, uh, they're fucking Andrea with you. Gale. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I lived on the East Coast. I would have known about that fucking storm. <laughs> You're being lied to. Everything in this society is a lie. That wasn't Aubrey Plaza. That was probably just me high on meth. Aubrey Plaza was when I went to her house and she was like, could you not do meth? You know, you're obviously high. And I was like, uh, every, everybody in your life has left you in this last six months. You don't think that maybe you're the fucking problem. And then I left and she had just gone to a divorce and my sister had moved out and she was just like completely alone. And I would just show up and just cut her throat every once in a while and then leave again. And she was paying. I made her pay for a long time. That's why she's uh, golden now. She's completely forgiven. <laughs> um, Tyler. Oh, fuck. I said his name. Ooh. Boyfriend who killed himself is the only person that doesn't get called out by their name. Um, Tyler probably never did anything wrong. He was an obstinate little shit. Uh, but I love obstinance. I love it. It's my favorite. I'm so drawn to it as a personality trait. And when Tyler and I met, immediately we were like, oh, fuck. We are. Within five minutes of talking, I was like, you live with me now. You're my boyfriend. And he was like, all right. And we just talked into each other's face it was the most magical thing in the world and he loved me and he was so obstinate that i was like i can only have sex if it's rape and he was like i'm not raping you idiot and then it was a long time before we had sex because we we're like at this impasse and he knew everything he was one of the smartest people i ever met he had this insane vocabulary he just like his brain was an encyclopedia and i would just sit around for hours and hours and hours and hours and he would teach me about everything in the world and i would be because the internet wasn't that much of a thing yet, you know? And so I was like, what does this mean? What is this about? What is this about? And he just had one of these in complex, brilliant minds that I love to ferret around in. And he had all these really weird quirks and he was tiny. He was just fucking like a foot shorter than me or something. He looked like Tom Cruise. And he learned about computers and then was constantly just like building computers and splicing things together. And it was tweakerish, but he was like so smart. And I, I loved him so much and he loved me so much. And then he just kind of got addicted to a video game and this magical window that we had together had just kind of ended abruptly. And I felt, I look back now and I'm like, oh God, it was me. It was me. I fucked that up. If you would have asked me two years ago, I would have been like, Tyler left me. Tyler brought me to a place that 
I had, uh, I don't know. Dustin and I had a pretty cool connection, but it wasn't a soul connection. It was like, you know, love, like infatuation, like whatever, codependency, but Tyler started playing video games all the time. He got like screen addicted and then I would uh, bitch about it and try to get him to leave the house or whatever. And then he was obstinate. So I probably just made him be um, literally screen addicted. Like, is he playing a video game all day long? Every yeah. I mean, day? he's on meth and he's trying to beat Diablo too. And I'm just <laughs> like, so how many, how many it. days? A lot. This went on for a lot because then I just, I think I pushed him so hard that he, he's obstinate, you know? So then I just made him, uh, you just can't fuck with obstinate people like that. I mean, I think that's why I'm attracted to them, right? Because I'm supposed to learn something in their reflection and I am a force. So you have to be just what are we talking about? Porn. Weeks? One month? Two months? Years. The whole relationship was... Years. Just he played Diablo for probably six months, but I think I had ruined the relationship by the time he was done beating Diablo because then he was like, I'm going to beat it again a different way. And then he was like, I'm going to get a new game and I'm going to stare at the computer for this reason and I'm going to do this. And But we were still very close, but the relationship was growing toxic. Okay. And... uh so why do you say now that you that he didn't do anything wrong? Um, I just think that like I I remember it as like the honeymoon ending because he started playing video games and forty two year old me is like, what if I just let him play the video games? What if I just let him have distance? What if distance didn't feel like I was going to get left at any second? What if it didn't feel like someone making their way to the door? Because if uh, if I think you're making your way to the door, I'll break up with you. And so I broke up with Tyler a thousand times. Every time I felt distance, it felt like the crushing weight of abandonment. And I was like, we might as well just end this. And I picked fights constantly because it felt like he was going to leave. Like you're going to leave anyway. And he probably wasn't fucking going anywhere because Tyler loved me so much. And, um, after like a year and a half, he also got like addicted to porn, like genuinely addicted to porn. And our sex life turned into like us just jacking off together. And after a while, him just jacking off without me. And I was always very triggered by uh, that, which was because uh, first husband had a 24-hour refractory period. So <laughs> um, also the church taught me that, you know, he was jerking off because I'm fucking disgusting. But um, whew, I feel like... <laughs> There's a lot of things lining up right now. So I did horrible things to Tyler. I did open the relationship at one point because I was convinced that he didn't like me and he was going to cheat on me. And so I was like, you can fuck other women, like whatever. It was all this just flailing. And I just like, I'm looking back on these memories now and this just dude was just like playing on his computer and we would fight and the fight to be violent. I never considered that like uh, assault because he was tiny and it was like I won most of those fights but you like all the pictures of me as a tweaker had a black eye and that was just because like I would uh attack him and then you know he'd throw a propane tank at my face but uh I would leave him all the time I would like abandon him and then uh he and then I would just like end up with nowhere to go 
and then he would always take me back. And I remember one time he left the tri- triplex that we had and I had been trying to move out of the triplex anyway. So the, the, um, what's his name that you met, uh, <laughs> kicked, like kicked everyone else out of the triplex. And then like Tyler was gone. And, fuck. Oh, and, by the way, you said his name eight times. Did I? Right. Yeah. I don't know why it matters. It's the one person that's not going to hear the podcast. It, you, you, uh, said it seconds after <laughs> you were like, you were like, the unnamed boyfriend who killed himself. Man, Tyler didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> I don't know why it's the one, but it's like the one person whose name I, it's fine to say. Oh, I, I've all, no, I've always understood why it's, uh, it's like a sacred name. Yeah. I remember cause he was just like another one of my indoctrinated boys, you know? And, uh, I love my indoctrinated, obstinate indoctrinated men. And I remember his parents thought I was gross and trashy. And I remember how just, he would just fight the shit out of his parents. But you will fucking respect her. He was like. In love with you. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it got really bad. And then we just kind of lived together like brother and sister. We had a very twin flame kind of vibe also. And so we were just inseparable though. We were just. Uh. uh and we hadn't been having sex in a long time, but I went out one night and I came back and he was fucking this chick and I put a hose through the window and like hosed them off. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of funny tweaker fights, <laughs> but, um, anyway, uh, I would fuck dudes in the next room and kick him out of the apartment cause I'm going to hook up with someone else. And it was like, was so mean to him i aubrey plazaed him so many times and when i ended up finally leaving him it was a a cruel exit one of the like one of these memories that i have a really hard time looking back on and then uh he was also being shitty to me he punched me in the chest at one point and then my boyfriend my new boyfriend that i left him for kicked the shit out of him but i let it happen and uh i consider myself so loyal and this was my best friend in the whole world and the closest I had ever been to anyone at that point. And I let him get beat up, even though he kind of had it coming because he punched me in the chest. And then he like still, still would take me back in a second if I wanted to. And he ended up getting clean, moving back to his parents' house. And I remember it really bumming me out that he hated my guts and I just couldn't deal with it. So I was like, come over because I was broken up from asshole boyfriend at this point come over I want to be your friend and I remember him coming up because he wasn't involved he had a hard time being vulnerable you know he we were similar and um he came over and it like took him a long time to like warm up and then he started being there's a very childlike thing about him and he started being Tyler again and then asshole ex-boyfriend happens to show up that day and then I'm like you have to go because asshole ex-boyfriend is an asshole and Oh, I just like broke his heart again. Like he just like let his guard down and let me around. That wasn't me being Aubrey Plaza. That was just tweaker shit, but I'm just reflecting no, on how big of a piece of shit. Yeah. And, uh, I was, uh, he told me before he killed himself, uh, that he feels like he lives in a prison every day of his life. I don't think he ever could love again. I think uh, 
I mean, other things led to the suicide, but um, yeah, he also never loved again because of the suicide, right? Right, like you didn't you didn't fuck him up permanently, right? He he I mean, it had, had been a couple a years, couple but years, he was just but like, like, yeah, that's so. I definitely see some Aubrey Plaza in in that. Well, do you want to keep talking about the other sub personalities just on a Patreon episode? Sure. Sorry, okay. <laughs> this turned into me uh, going through my Rolodex of trauma. Jess, this no, this is amazing. Okay. Um, yeah, we sat down to, to just talk about internal family systems. That was the plan. And uh, I don't know, I'll, I'm going to gush about this on the Patreon episode because I'm so... like I have a lot of things that I want to say, and it's been hard to hold on to all of them. But I want to be able to say them. I want to close this episode with this story, though. Okay. Danny Hunt, friend of the podcast. Uh, you guys have heard the Searstone episodes with Danny. Um, Jessa loves Danny. I love Danny, Danny and I go camping and hang out and see movies and and get high together. We're good Salt Lake. He buddies. likes Big Love. We yeah. talk about Big Love. Have you ever met Danny's wife? No. Okay, she's wonderful. She works in a mental hospital for teenage girls, uh, essentially. Not yeah, you know, I don't know the specifics, but she works with girls a lot like you, uh, like you were. And Danny tells me often, he brings it up a lot, how, because I think she's talking about a lot, how much hope you give her because she feels like shit most days. And she's like, none of these girls will ever get better. Like, imagine seeing you, uh, the people that were strapping you down at 14. Right. The people that were getting their shit thrown around and and listening to you say uh, obviously made up stuff on the Rorschach tests and just, you know. She's like, they're never going to get better. They're, they've had too much shit happen to them. You know, they, uh, they've been abandoned. They've been abused. They, they don't trust, blah, blah, blah. And it can be very depressing. And... Uh, it's amazing to see uh, how far you come. Thank you. Anyway, you did, I'm very proud of you tonight. Well, let's, let's keep talking about, follow us over to the Patreon. We're going to keep talking about this stuff. For I'm those get- of you that don't know what Patreon is, <laughs> yes. it's a website <laughs> where you pay $5. We don't get paid for this podcast. The only money we've ever made on this podcast, despite the fact that there's ads for some reason, is off of the Patreon. So we go to hotel rooms. We pay for the hotel rooms. We pay for this equipment. We edit it. We spend all of our time. We don't make any money on this podcast. Just thought maybe some of you didn't know that. Yeah. We do all of this. Blue Chew has not paid me. (laughs) Blue Chew. Blue Chew hasn't sent me Blue Chew yet. (laughs) So for $5 a month, you can get the last two months worth of episodes and for $10 a month, you can get every episode we've ever put on the Patreon. We put three new episodes a month on the Patreon, but you also would have access to a million other ones. And whenever we do a very long episode, we put the second half on the Patreon. So patreon.com, and then you search Mormon and the Meth Head and, you know, give us uh, 5 or $10 a month and you get all that. There'll be new tiers soon, but the website sucks, so I haven't been able to do anything yeah. new. And we've been lazy, but we're getting to it. 
This is a very this is a very good plug, Jessa. Yeah, I thought we should probably explain what yeah, Patreon I'm is. Yeah, I'm always surprised at how many comments I see of like, what's a Patreon? Yeah, that's why they're not. I thought I was the last one on board. Anyway. When we get to 500, we will put up four episodes a month. You can get one a week. Jesus. We got to get to 500 patrons first. Okay. We're only at 250, so that gives us a while. Fingers crossed. We're going to start doing ASCA things where you can ask us she's just pulling this out of her ass (laughs) we've never discussed any of this we discussed this on the stairs earlier so you know it's written in stone it's been five minutes (laughs) i think we're gonna have a t-shirt tier lots of stuff so anyway head over to patreon give us money it's it's crazy the the broker we get the the better our patreon gets (laughs) just like we haven't put any effort into it but now but now we're like getting evicted and we're like we're gonna have videos out we got t-shirt tears we're gonna do ask a section (laughs) we're gonna keep our apartment (laughs) don't forget to book a reading yeah (laughs) mention mormon and the method when you do please (laughs) we'll see you guys next time bye if you put a mormon and a method Together, this is what they sound like. Aaron would all let us read our friends. Listen to them talking to Mike. Stop it, a podcast network.